Thank you for joining us today to talk about the evolving roles of urologists and medical oncologists in the care of patients with renal cell carcinoma. My name is Dr. William Huang. I'm a urologic oncologist and associate professor of urology at NYU Langone Health and the Perlmutter Cancer Center. I'm very pleased to be the moderator for this series of interesting discussions. I'm here today with Dr. Sumanta Paul, associate professor and co-director of the Kidney Cancer Program at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Dr. Viraj Master, professor and associate chair of clinical affairs and quality and director of the clinical research unit uh, in the Department of Urology at Emory University. Welcome, Dr. Paul, Dr. Master. So we're going to start today by talking about how the landscape of care in renal cell carcinoma uh, has changed and how the alteration in the landscape has impacted the roles as being a urologist and a medical oncologist. So why don't we first talk about uh, how this landscape has changed uh, in relation to the disease states that you manage in renal cell carcinoma. So we'll start with Dr. Master first. I would say that really the last couple of years has been an explosion of options available to the physician treating the kidney cancer patient as well as the amount of clinical trials, frankly, that are available for patients with high-risk kidney cancer who are at risk for recurrence. So the first important news was the approval of sunitinib for the adjuvant setting where the S-TRAC clinical trial showed a increase in disease-free survival of approximately one year without increased overall survival, but nevertheless, um, highly attractive to patients and physicians is the idea that you can extend for the first time ever in kidney cancer, a disease-free survival in the adjuvant setting. And then for you, Dr. Paul, so traditionally, uh, it would be fair to say that urologists manage localized kidney cancer, medical oncologists managed metastatic disease. Uh, now, obviously, with the, the, the uh, FDA approval for an adjuvant uh, trial or an adjuvant agent, along with all these clinical trials, can you describe how your role has sort of been moved up now in the management of patients with kidney cancer? Absolutely. You know, when I entered into the field a decade ago, it would actually be pretty unusual for me to see a patient with localized kidney cancer um, outside of the context of a clinical trial. At that point in time, I had very little to offer. Uh, nowadays, I think that it's really appropriate for every patient, frankly speaking, to have a somewhat uh, of a consultation with a medical oncologist in parallel with the urologist. So since we're talking about the topic of adjuvant therapies, uh, Dr. Paul, if you could sort of go through uh, with this, obviously, uh, Dr. Master mentioned uh, sunitinib, uh, but can you just sort of describe to us what agents have been in study and what agents are currently being studied, uh, you know, beginning with the targeted therapies and then moving on to the immunologic agents? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, the, the study of adjuvant therapy in renal cell carcinoma really sort of dates back to the cytokine era. There are multiple studies looking at biologics such as interferon and interleukin-2, and none of them, to my satisfaction, were really convincingly positive. Now, in 2005 and onwards, when we had the advent of VEGF-TKIs for metastatic disease, that's really when interest started to form uh, for looking at VEGF-TKIs in the adjuvant setting as well. 
Uh, we've had a multitude of studies, including S-TRAC, that Dr. Master alluded to, um, that have, I would say, largely yielded negative results, in fact. Uh, beyond S-TRAC, which Dr. Master very nicely outlined, we have the Assure clinical trial, which compared sinitinib, serafinib, and placebo. Mm -hmm. That study was wholly negative, really no arguing about that. We have the PROTECT trial, uh, pizopinib versus placebo, also a negative study. And most recently, we actually had the uh, readout of the ATLAS study in press release form. Uh, this was a comparison of an extended duration of exitinib, three years, uh, versus placebo. Um, and that study was also deemed to be negative in press release. So, you know, beyond S-TRAC, there really is a substantial literature that, in my mind, sort of weighs against adjuvant VEGF TKI therapy. So, um in your own personal practice, uh, when a patient comes to see you uh, requesting to be put on an adjuvant therapy, uh, well, I guess there's only one real proven one unless they're enrolling in a clinical trial. Uh, what are the things that you discuss with them? For instance, if their histologic subtype is not clear cell, will you still offer them that, that agent or will you, uh, you know, uh, try to uh, convince them to perhaps look in other venues if they're looking for adjuvant treatments? It's a great question. Um, so in broad terms, I really do sort of walk every patient through this conversation that we just went through, outlining the results from Assure and Protect and S-Track at some cursory level uh, or in whatever detail they see fit. Um, when it comes to non-clear cell histologies, I tend to be a little bit more dogmatic, though. Because S-TRAC, which is, again, really the only study that um, is po has been deemed positive to date, did not evaluate non-clear cell histologies, I actually don't offer adjuvant sinitinib in that patient population. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of referring patients, uh, obviously we'll talk about referring them for clinical trial, but do you have any high-risk patients that you'll refer to uh, your, your med local medical oncologist or the medical oncologist at Emory uh, to start them on an adjuvant treatment? Yeah, that's a really great question, Bill. I think that, you know, I have a slightly nuanced view on this. I'm not yet sure that I refer every single high-risk patient to medical oncology because there's a paucity of effective treatments. Now, when there's a clinical trial, as Dr. Paul uh, knows well, as he's uh, one of the global heads of the of a, clinical trial looking at anti-PDL1 agent currently in the adjuvant setting. I'm a huge proponent of trying to get patients to clinical trials and mm -hmm. will absolutely encourage the patient and their family members to seek medical oncology consultation. But outside of clinical trial, with the fairly disappointing data from the S-TRAC clinical trial, I'm not sure that every single patient necessarily <clears throat> needs to make that extra trip. I do think that every patient needs to be absolutely informed using one of a variety of different risk calculators that are easily available on the web to patients and physicians alike that the data for survival after resection for high-risk kidney cancer can be sometimes quite dismal. So I absolutely think it's important to be upfront with patients and I often print out survival uh, statistics and give it to them. That often generates the conversation with patients and their family members if they say, well, gee, are you sure there's nothing else that you can do for me? Is this really true? Then I use that as an opportunity to say, well, why don't we ask another expert mm -hmm. who has a slightly different take on the subject matter to talk to you? And that's when I would refer them to medical oncology. But if the patient themselves looks at the data and says, gosh, 
there's no effective agent out there and I'm not a candidate for a, a trial, well, why don't you keep following me? And that's kind of how we do it. Mm -hmm. So it, it, is it fair to say that <coughs> that, that conversation probably didn't exist even five years ago, right? If you had a patient who was high risk uh, before the advent of these trials using targeted therapies, for instance, uh, what was the standard of care or what is the standard of care outside of uh, the FDA approved agent for adjuvant therapy? Great question. You know, unfortunately for patients, it was somewhat of a ticking, ticking time bomb. Just like <clears throat> you and your colleagues, I'd probably get scans of some kind at some regular interval and we all hold our breaths with anxiety, waiting for negative scans to hopefully appear or unfortunately sometimes positive scans indicating uh, relapse of disease or development of new metastatic disease would occur. So you're right, it's a completely new world. Mm -hmm. Particularly for the urologist, for the first time we actually must talk to patients about the fact that there is an agent that is approved and if the patient themselves says, well, gee, Dr. Master, I, I hear you say that it's not going to increase my survival, but it could increase my disease-free survival. Then again, I use that as an opportunity to get them to our medical oncology colleagues. Do you feel that our urology colleagues in, in the general community um, are beginning to increase that dialogue with their patients and perhaps referring them to a medical oncologist? Are you beginning to see more referrals from community urologists as opposed to at your own medical center? coming to see you for not specifically one thing or another, uh, but I heard there's adjuvant therapy or my urologist told me I should come see you. Is that, do you notice an uptick in that or has that been pretty stagnant? Sure, you know, in my referring base, I've been pretty vigilant about advocating for some of the adjuvant immunotherapy studies that I'm running right now. And we oftentimes have frequent dialogues related to my perspective on adjuvant sinitinib therapy. So from that standpoint, I think they're relatively well informed. And the patients that they're sending to me are typically those that are sort of primed for adjuvant trials. Okay, so um, <clears throat> it, it, it really is though because you've established a dialogue with them and not necessarily the community sort of being aware of this and then seeking you out or, or, or do you think it's a little bit of both or? It might be a bit of both, but I, I do think that, you know, certainly we have a responsibility at academic centers to really sort of fan out this message. It's really essential with so many trials ongoing in the immunotherapy mm -hmm. space, so many really exciting trials and ones that I think stand to make a big dent in the field to get word out there. So patients don't, for instance, get prematurely started on sinitinib or other agents that might disqualify them. So that's an excellent lead-in. So if you could sort of help us uh, discuss the rationale behind, behind using immunotherapy for the treatment of kidney cancer and then sort of lead us through how uh, that's now evolved into adjuvant and even neoadjuvant use of, of uh, immunotherapy for the management of kidney cancer. I'm happy to. Well, immunotherapy, like, for instance, most other drug development pathways, has sort of made its way from the second line of refractory setting in metastatic renal cell carcinoma uh, to the frontline setting, and hopefully one day we'll make a dent in the adjuvant space as well based on some of the studies that we're gonna discuss today. Um, but nivolumab, uh, which is an anti-PD-1-based agent, was actually approved in the second line setting on the basis of the Checkmate 025 study. This was a head-to-head -head trial comparing nivolumab to the mTOR inhibitor Everolimus. Uh, the study yielded a survival advantage that was quite impressive. No real improvement in terms of progression-free survival. Uh, most recently, and this was actually just published in the New England Journal a couple of weeks ago, we have the Checkmate 214 study. This trial pitted 
nivolumab with uh, ipilimumab against sinitinib. Um, and this was a very important study in the, our landscape of disease and suggested a, really a very substantial improvement in overall survival, great response rates, and really for the first time in an unselected population of patients, uh, cures in a substantial proportion. About 9 to 10% of patients actually had complete responses, and to date those have actually been quite durable. I think all of these studies in the advanced disease space have really inspired us uh, to really join forces with urology and develop trials in the adjuvant space. So uh, both of you, if you could each uh, describe or talk about the trials that you're currently involved with in, uh, using uh, immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting. We could start with you, Dr. Paul. Sure, sure. Um, so there are a couple of uh, you know, studies that uh, are ongoing right now. The study that I've actually really been uh, pushing the development of is the Emotion 010 trial. This is a study that looks at adjuvant uh, atezolizumab versus uh, placebo. Atezolizumab differs from nivolumab in the sense that it's a PDL1 antagonist as opposed to a PD1 antagonist. Um, atezolizumab has really shown a substantial efficacy in the context of metastatic or advanced renal cell carcinoma. This particular trial takes patients who have resected disease, primarily those patients that are pathologic T3 and T4, does permit T2, uh, T2 grade 4 patients as well, or interestingly, individuals who have had metastasectomy and subjects them to this randomization. This trial is almost identical in design to a trial uh, termed uh, Keynote uh, that's actually enrolling patients to the similar randomization of pembrolizumab versus, uh, versus uh, placebo. And Dr. Master, you're participating in multiple trials. Can you talk about uh, some of the other trials and how they differ from the one that Dr. Paul had just mentioned? <clears throat> I think the really the only other trial that's different is the ECOG PROSPER clinical trial, which randomizes patients in a one-to-one -one fashion to get neoadjuvant um, immunotherapy followed by nephrectomy followed by nine months of continued immunotherapy versus what is standard of care in America today, which is surgery for patients with a relatively, um, I would call, moderate to high-risk kidney cancer, so a renal mass that is either seven centimeters uh, or greater, or one that might be smaller but deemed to be invasive, such as a T3A tumor. One of the differences there is that there's no true placebo arm. And an additional difference is that patients do have to have a biopsy before surgery. And many patients, as you and I both know, are constantly asking us, well, aren't you going to spread my cancer if you do a biopsy on me because of various myths in the, if you will, popular press about biopsy. Additional factor that is a a change in mindset for both patients as well as surgeons is the fact that uh, for the first time a patient walks into your office with a large mass the size of you know, a tennis ball or, a, or something larger and you say well you know actually we're not going to operate on you right away even though your primary care doctor told you you need an operation right away and perhaps uh, other care providers told you you need an operation right away but instead we're going to biopsy you then give you roughly one month of immunotherapy ahead of time. And it really requires a substantial amount of buy-in, both on the part of the physician, as you and I know, but also on the part of the patient, because they've heard that they must have this mass taken out 
right as away. quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, in my mind, it's the only one that's currently activated in the neoadjuvant space, and it's a real difference in mindset that patients and, and uh, physicians have to embrace. And when I say physicians, um, I'd be remiss to say that it's, it's not just urologists having to embrace this, but our medical oncology counterparts as well. Um, at least in the United States, most urologists are not administering um, anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 therapy, and they work very closely with their medical oncology colleagues to administer this therapy. So it requires the medical oncology colleagues also to truly buy into the fact that really for the first time we're going to try to uh, do a neoadjuvant therapy and what if that mass grows? What if the patient has, uh, again as you and I see, a patient with a tumor thrombus mm -hmm. and we're going to commit that patient to several weeks of treatment before surgery if that thrombus grows. Um, it could make surgery substantially more difficult or sometimes in certain cases may prohibit the action of surgery. Could you perhaps elaborate uh, as to, or maybe you can, Dr. Paul, um, either one of you, the sort of the scientific rationale behind administering in the neoadjuvant setting before resecting uh, what the thought may be in terms of a benefit uh, in, in terms of treating the actual tumor, priming the immune system while the mass is still there, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, in the scientific literature been modest evidence, in my opinion, to suggest that you really have to have some sort of antigenic load mm -hmm. or antigenic burden in order to elicit an immune response. And I think that's one of the fundamental premises of the PROSPER trial that Dr. Master outlined. Um, having that tumor intact really gives nivolumab, in the context of that study, something to go after, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it's going to be nice to have all of these studies run in parallel. When PROSPER was initially conceived, it had a very interesting design that took exactly what Dr. Master had mentioned, a neoadjuvant window of nivolumab, followed by nephrectomy, followed by further nivolumab versus observation. But there was an, also an arm, and I think this would have been an excellent addition to the study, looking at nephrectomy followed by nivolumab. And there you would have really seen the contribution right, of that <clears throat> neoadjuvant window. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Dr. Paul. I think that, you know, obviously there's whenever you're doing a large phase three trial, there's cost considerations, there's number of patient considerations, but that would have really allowed one to hone in on what is the effect of neoadjuvant therapy. The reality is that um, a lot of the enthusiasm is based on um, a preclinical study based on the administration of an anti-PD-1 compound into a mouse model showing if given neoadjuvantly can result in cures as opposed to given adjuvantly. There is also from um, you know, a major medical institution, a small study of a few patients that has shown that it's safe and feasible to do this. So armed with those two pieces of data, one that in the human being, it's safe and feasible to give neoadjuvant immunotherapy and take patients through nephrectomy, which many urologists had hitherto not had any experience with, and then based upon the basic science model, if you will, that it's possible to get some cures if immunotherapy is given neoadjuvantly. Um, those two are the factors that have led to the, this phase three trial coming out. Um, can you comment at all on some of the other uh, agents like vaccines, for instance, that, that have been studied? Uh, uh, or even going back to even before we had uh, targeted therapies, 
the use of interferon or interleukin, uh, and if, if those have ever been investigated in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, certainly those have, and we've uh, actually written some nice reviews related to this, all of them showing, you know, almost unequivocally negative results. I think the big challenge with agents like interferon and interleukin-2, and I'm sure you'll agree, is that the results that we see in the metastatic setting are really limited to a very, very small subset of patients. Interleukin-2, for instance, really yields the sorts of durable responses that we're looking for in only about 5 to 7% of patients that it's applied to. And that's already a very narrow subset of individuals from the get-go. So with that in mind, I think that those studies were destined for failure. On the other hand, agents like atezolizumab, nivolumab, et cetera, all of those have really been vetted in the context of unselected populations with advanced disease. So I think they stand to perhaps benefit patients more in the adjuvant setting. And, and how, how about the tolerability of some of these agents? For instance, it's been well known that administering IL-2 is quite toxic and requires a specialized center. Um, and perhaps to administer that in an adjuvant setting with very little benefit, perhaps, it's not worth it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the side effects that patients may expect if they're undergoing adjuvant treatment with an with a immunologic agent? You're absolutely right. With high-dose interleukin-2, major toxicities, phasogenic leak syndrome, uh, major cardiac dysrhythmias, et cetera, um, of course, many of the studies that looked at adjuvant interleukin-2 really use suboptimal doses, low-dose interleukin-2, low doses of interferon, to allow really for sustainability of the therapy. Um, as we look to the adjuvant immunotherapy trials, they're using doses that are really more or less equivalent to what we're using in the context of advanced disease. When it comes to toxicities, I, I don't want to undermine the toxicities with these classes of therapies, but we tend to see severe, and when I say severe, I'm referring to what we would characterize as grade three or four toxicities that would really sort of prohibit activities of daily living and day-to-day -day functioning of the patient in about 15% at the very most of individuals. These can be really critical toxicities, autoimmune colitis, autoimmune hepatitis, thyroiditis, all three of these come to mind as being the most prominent. Um, and that's really where this whole multidisciplinary uh, effort really comes into play. We really have to work hand in hand, not just with our urologists, but also, frankly, with our gastroenterologists and our endocrinologists in order to manage these patients. Right. And be sensitive to even small complaints that the patient may have, like a persistent cough, um, indicative of potential pneumonitis. So, you know, for the first time, you as a treating physician have to be attuned to even small complaints that a patient is having and be able to head them off early because for most immune-related toxicities, early detection allows for the institution of prompt therapy, which often can ameliorate the course of their immune-related toxicity. I, I wonder, Dr. Paul, do you have a thought about is high-dose uh, or is IL-2 dead yet or are there other ways of delivering IL-2, such as trials that involve pegylated IL-2, for instance, um, that might make it, perhaps in combination with other immuno-oncology agents, um, something that's still relevant in kidney cancer care. Yeah, absolutely. The trials that are emerging now, and you bring up a great point of pegylated IL-2, may potentially bring what we've often termed this antiquated regimen back into our arsenal. Um, I don't know whether or not high-dose interleukin-2 is really ever going to find a place in my treatment armamentarium, but pegylated IL-2 and some of these other novel immunotherapeutic strategies certainly may weave these traditional immunotherapies back into the fold. Yeah, and I've also been fascinated by how quickly the field 
in medical oncology is concerned, kidney cancer care is changing with regard to therapies that come and go. Uh, for example, the IDO therapies have, um, there was a tremendous um, explosion of trials involving IDO. Now they're, they're kind of collapsing, if you will. Any, any thoughts about yeah. the IDO space? I, I really feel as medical oncologists focusing on renal cell carcinoma, we're really looking to the melanoma folks to inform us. And I don't know if we're allowed to talk about melanoma at AUA, but, uh, <laughs> but I'll bring it up for a moment. I, I really do think that they've sort of set the standard when it comes right. to immunotherapy. And uh, you, you mentioned IDO, Dr. Master. I can't think of a setting in which we have an agent that's fizzled in melanoma, an immunotherapeutic strategy mm -hmm. that has actually worked in another histology. Mm -hmm. um, so you saw with the initial failure of a phase three IDO inhibitor in melanoma, the crumbling of trials in renal cell carcinoma and bladder cancer also relevant to our practices uh, thereafter. And I think that was a smart move, frankly. Uh, do I think that that really spells the sort of end-all, be-all for other immunotherapeutic strategies? I, I don't think so, but I also think that it encourages me to really look at other forays and combinations. So I'm very excited about all the combo trials of VEGF inhibitors with IO-based agents. And I think one of the real tenets in renal cell carcinoma is that there's gonna be patients sensitive to one class of drugs and the other, and, and finding that sweet spot, the individuals who really need both, is really critical. I, I don't wanna digress, because I do wanna come back to the use of these agents, but uh, I, I can't help wanting to know what your personal philosophy is in treating patients with high-risk non-clear cell histologies, both of you. Uh, you know, uh, a papillary type two or, or, uh, or even a chromophobe uh, that's considered quote unquote high risk. Well, I can tell you that at ASCO GU this year, we saw the first presentation, to my knowledge, some data mm -hmm. related to uh, nephrectomy and so forth in the context of uh, papillary disease. Um, you know, I, I'll say that, you know, uh, frankly speaking, I, I don't think that there is um, as much of a role for you know, cytoreductive nephrectomy in that population. Uh, when it comes to uh, adjuvant therapy, I'm fairly dogmatic based on the S-TRAC trial, which didn't include these patients. Um, I would probably re refuse to offer adjuvant sinitinib therapy in that setting. Um, when it comes to clinical trials, my study doesn't permit papillary. Right. I think yours does, right, Dr. Master? Uh, pro you know, that's a good question. I don't think I know the exact answer to that. I thought it did not. Right. Okay. I think they had to be biopsied for a clear cell yeah, histology. Okay. Yeah. Clear <clears throat> cell. Got it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one thing I would say is it's interesting you mentioned cytoreductive nephrectomy, and maybe we'll get to this, Dr. Huang. Um, the data is weaker for cytoreductive nephrectomy in non-clear cell histology, but at least my take on literature and, and um, kind of looking at uh, papers put out by the IMDC group, uh, but as well as data mining from uh, NCDB and others, it, it's less effective, but it's not ineffective. So I still, in my clinical practice, do uh, offer to the selected patient cytoreductive mm -hmm. nephrectomy, but really am trying to encourage them whenever possible to get on to a clinical trial. So if we could, going back to adjuvant clinical trials, um, how do you think we can encourage uh, the community urologist to uh, participate in these clinical trials or to get them to consider sending their patients after they've had their nephrectomy, for instance, 
in in a timely fashion so they could still participate in it uh, since they, you know, the time hasn't lapsed where they're no longer eligible. Yeah, uh, that's such a great, it's such a great point. I'm interested to know what Dr. Paul has to say about this as well, but in, in my view, some of it is dissemination, science, dissemination ability, um, as well as personal relationships. I, after I do a case, I usually try very hard to reach out to the medical oncologist or urologist who might have referred the patient to me. I try my hardest to give talks in large urology group practices in my region, uh, not necessarily to say, please send me all of your patients, but to say that please consider um, looking out for clinical trials for your patients and, and hopefully we can also involve patients and their, and their loved ones in, in this to say, isn't there anything else that we can do? So I'm, I think it's up to us, um, certainly from a dissemination uh, side, to try to talk to our local community of urologists and medical oncologists, frankly, to say, let's consider some adjuvant trials. Right. I think, you know, for instance, some of the other trials where it required, uh, say, tissue collection at the time of nephrectomy and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, sub, at least with these current trials, it allows the local urologist to continue to treat their patient, operate on their own patient. Right. But then we have to make sure that they're aware that after they've operated on them, they can still help their patient out by sending them to uh, a center that is participating in a clinical trial. And I think that's very important that we get that message out. Uh, that they don't necessarily, quote-unquote, lose that patient. They can still treat the patient, but they can continue to do more for them after that. And perhaps even the tremendous educational value that you can give to the uh, community urologists and say that financial toxicity is a real problem for patients in America today, but many times in the context of clinical trials, things like um, scans, things like the cost of a visit are often substantially defrayed so that hmm. financial toxicity is lessened many times if a patient's able to participate in a clinical trial. I don't know what your perspective on that, Dr. Paul, but I think that's a really important informational piece. Absolutely. With oral medications like sinitinib and medical oncology clinics, we're oftentimes fraught with issues related to financing these agents, and I couldn't agree with you more. I'd never want you know, there to be a financial motivation for driving uh, enrollment in a clinical trial, mm -hmm. but it certainly circumvents a huge issue in our day-to-day -day practice. And uh, would you say that, I was just referring originally to the question to Dr. Master about the local urologist wanting to perform the nephrectomy. Uh, do you find that uh, now that there is an FDA-approved agent mm -hmm. for high risk uh, in the adjuvant setting, that the community practice may not be willing to necessarily refer on to enroll in a clinical trial. For instance, I've seen at least two of my patients who were non-clear histology who got put on adjuvant uh, sutent just because, um, or adjuvant sunitinib, just because that was FDA-approved. And they said, oh, well, you know what? There's, this is an FDA-approved drug, and I'm going to just put you on this and and treat you, uh, assuming that the toxicity isn't bad, and then they did not send them on to participate in the clinical trial. Got it, got it. Yeah, it, it's always gonna be challenging to avert 
all of those scenarios. Um, but you know, I think to the best of our ability, if we're able to spread through word of mouth, and and really, as Dr. Master alluded through uh, through personal relationships, convey the message of these studies. I think that's really key. One of the points that I always try to drive home when I'm speaking to my urologists in the community is that we've got a timeline of three months to get onto these trials, and that tends to be a big barrier. Um, everyone has a different schedule of their routine follow-ups, sometimes a month out, uh, very rarely two or three months out. When that happens and when those referrals are issued to me too late, then we're really out of luck when it comes to getting within the windows that are mandated for these adjuvant studies. Uh, for my trial, I know this is true for the adjuvant pembrolizumab study as well, we have a window of 84 days, and it's a very tight deadline. And I think what's important for urologists and the community to know is that there's a lot that we need to do within that three-month span. We have to get scans, have them centrally assessed, get tissue centrally assessed. We've run up against these mm -hmm. deadlines ourselves, haven't we, Dr. Master? But uh, it, it's quite challenging to do all of that unless you have a healthy window of enrollment. And so, you know, that's exactly what I was, uh, that was my next question, was to discuss sort of the hurdles and the limitations that we have in getting these patients into it. And you just mentioned the, the time limitation. Uh, are there anyone, uh, any other limitations that you can think of? Just because both of you have, are leaders in, in both of these trials and you've accrued a very, very large amount of patients in these trials, and, and what's the secret to your success? How are you overcoming the hurdles that a lot of us, for instance, may not be able to overcome or haven't been able to overcome? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I don't know. I know, that, I know it's, a, it's a difficult I don't know but. that uh, I have the, the secret sauce um, to tell you. I, I would tell you, share the recipe if I had the secret right. sauce, but <laughs> I would mention that I find it very helpful to be very transparent with patients about what the outcome is with traditional care. And I really try to print out um, various nomograms for them mm -hmm. and then have them with me in the clinic, we circle the, the, the histologic features that make that cancer particularly ominous, for example, for, for adjuvant trials. And when they see that the one-year survival is poor and the three-year survival is poor and the five-year survival is poor, that transparency between myself and the patient, it's a little hard to do because no one likes to know they've gone through a big surgery with potentially several scars from a, robotic porch on their abdomen or what have you, and then be told, well, wait a second, you have a very poor survival, and the patient might ask the surgeon, well, why did I go through all this? And I find it hard and important to be transparent and say, okay, this is what we have now, and luckily there might be a scientific trial that can help to potentially change these odds, and if they can't change it for you, hopefully for the next generation of patients who've come face to face with this problem, it can work. And I find that um, talking to patients in that way, um, not trying to sugarcoat it for them, but also not trying to, um, you know, try to put them six feet under or something like that is helpful. They're appreciative of the facts and they're appreciative of something that may help to change those numbers. I'd say that's um, probably the, one of the most important things I've been able to do, and it took a little sea change for me to be able to give people a piece of paper that says the five-year survival might be in the teens. Right. And do you find yourself actually having that discussion even prior to their surgery? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that question, Dr. Hong. So in terms of the adjuvant clinical trial, that again, I think is 
to your point, absolutely very analogous. A um, patient might have a very large renal tumor that might have um, potentially large nodes surrounding the great vessels, a potentially a vena cava thrombus. And again, if you just do the numbers with that patient and the numbers are poor, the patient might say, well, why don't you just give me a fishing pole? Why should I go through any of these things that you just mentioned mm. to me? And um, I have had patients who I counsel and I go through some of the numbers with them and not just some hand-waving numbers. I'm talking about printing various pieces of paper and giving it to the patient. They say, no, thanks, doctor. I don't really want you to do anything. But then I've had other patients say, this looks bad. What else can we do to try to move the needle here? So I think that's been helpful with accrual. I also will say that accrual can only happen when the physician is surrounded by a team that helps to support the patient when they have more questions. And I'm grateful to have a, a large clinical research team um, that we've been able to build at Emory that helps to support patients, which is what I tell my referring physicians and, and frankly, friends in the community. I say, look, sometimes it's hard to talk to patients about all these different things, hard to make sure that they have enough time to talk to you or coordinators or so on. But if you just send them our way, we'll be happy to go through the conversations. They, then the patients can make up their mind. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't want to have anything done, but we're willing to take the time to do that because we have the resources to do that. Right. So, so you mentioned the importance of having a, a clinical team. So I, I think, you know, it's fair to say that uh, where it used to be a big separation between disease states, if you're localized kidney cancer, you saw a urologist and that was it. And if you had metastatic disease eventually, or if you were presented with metastatic disease and you'd see a medical oncologist, now clearly uh, there uh, is now an opportunity to establish a connection or a handoff even before you um, have operated on the patient uh, right. and sort of plant that seed that, that this is a multidisciplinary approach now, that this is no longer, you see me only until you develop metastatic disease uh, or you see a medical oncologist and I have nothing to do with your care uh, if you have metastatic disease. So along those lines, uh, you know, what are the ideal patients you, you, you guys, both of you can identify in terms of uh, where you're going to want them to see a medical oncologist and a urologist perhaps uh, even up front uh, prior to treating them? Well, um, in my ideal dream world, every single patient I see would also be seeing a medical oncologist. That would be my ideal. Um, patients get better educated. Patients know there's two different brains thinking about their problem. They feel more satisfied with their care. Likely they get better quality care because two eyeballs are looking at the CT scans or MRIs. So that's my wish list. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because of at time pressures that can't happen. But I will say this, in the world of care of cancer patients in America, there are other cancers where this is done. Breast cancer is the premier example of that. We can do better. We should do better for kidney cancer patients. So I'd love to achieve my ideal. We do that more and more at my own center for patients to see uh, both specialties. 
Dr. Paul, would, would, you, would you agree that, that uh, at, at your center, there's definitely this more multidisciplinary approach for kidney cancer now? I totally agree. And, and Dr. Master already alluded to some of the constraints and, and resources and time and so forth. So, you know, if I had to draw some line in the sand, it might just sort of sit around the small renal mass where, as a medical oncologist, I may not necessarily have as much involvement. But, you know, we've all seen, on the other hand, small tumors emerge with, you know, T3 status. And, you know, those patients are perfect study candidates. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think we've touched upon a lot of points here. So if we could just wrap up the key points that we talked about this evening. Uh, so what are the key points that you feel practicing urologists, the community urologists particularly, who may not have access to a multidisciplinary tumor board every week? What are the key points about what they should know uh, in order to, to develop a so successful collaboration between themselves and a medical oncologist? In other words, if you had to, if you had the ability, and you do now, to speak to the community urologist, uh, what would you tell them in terms of making sure that they're offering their patients every opportunity to get the appropriate care uh, if, if, uh, if needed? If I really had to distill this message, I'd say uh, it's important to know that adjuvant sinitinib is not the only option. Multiple clinical trials out there, and I can almost guarantee that if a practicing urologist picks the nearest academic center uh, to their hometown, they're going to find uh, a urologist or medical oncologist who would be happy to enroll the patient on a study. Great. Do you have anything to add to that? I don't think I could um, necessarily one-up Dr. Paul's eloquence <laughs> here, but I would I suppose even further say, phone a friend. Yeah. There is absolutely no hesitation on the part of the medical oncologist or the academic urologist like yourself, Dr. Huang or myself, to take a text or a call or FaceTime of someone's CT scan. Mm -hmm. We'd be, we'll tell our community urologist we can help or maybe we can't help, but phone a friend. Absolutely. Well, again, I want to thank both of you for uh, sharing your time with us to discuss this very important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.